0: Greetings, I'm Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Today's book is Unexpected Affinities, The History of Type, an Architectural Project from Legere to Duchamp by Pablo Meninato, published by Rattledge in 2018. Pablo is a PhD architect, architectural critic, and editor, whose research focuses on the concept and development of the architectural project. A native of Argentina, he taught and practiced architecture in Philadelphia, Buenos Aires, and uh, Monterrey. Uh, So hi, Pablo. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Patricia. I'm very glad to be here, and thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, let's start with what was your motivation for uh, writing this book? How did it all come about?
1: so uh, my book is about two interconnected issues uh, first it basically is about uh, the architectural type uh, of, often also reserved as typology which are terms that we use very very often in architecture and all the design disciplines but so often it is hard to grasp their two meanings So um, let's start by asking the most basic question, that it would be, what is a type? So a a type can be defined as the common features shared by a number of buildings. For instance, a row house is a type, or a courtyard, or a basilica, a skyscraper, a dome and bungalow, a colonnade. All these are architectural types. So a question that I argue in my book is that any conversation about architecture is inevitably a discussion on types. For instance, when discussing the Renaissance, historians will discuss about palazzos, temples, or villas. Or when talking about the contemporary cities, we'll discuss about row houses, particular here in Philadelphia where I live, or brownstone houses in New York City, in Manhattan, or housing complexes uh, or skyscrapers. And the other question, that, which is the main issue that I discuss in my book, is what is the initial step for creating or developing an architectural project? We know that most buildings around the world were based on some pre-existing form or some precedent. And on many occasions, that precedent is an architectural form that has been used with variations many times. So that, exactly, that idea of a precedent, that is a, or or I call it predetermined form, is a type. So let me give you an example. So uh, let's let's think, uh, uh, upon starting a new project, an architect may decide that the new building will have a central courtyard. So this idea, which is basically very abstract, uh, that is a building, parts surrounding a central space open to the elements, that, that is exactly a type. So if we take, for example, that that example, the, the courtyard house, we realize it has been used in so many places. It has been used already in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, also in different places and cultures, such as China, or Japan, or Mexico, and um, I would say interesting enough is that that same disposition or type is still being used nowadays in so, so many places around the world. So a fascinating aspect that I found, uh, for instance, again with the cordial type, and I would say of any type, is that it's independent of of the question of styles, of historical moment, and it is even independent of the materials used. use. So we know, for instance, that there are classical courtyard houses, but you may also find Gothic courtyard houses, and of course, there are modern courtyard houses. Uh, an example is Mies van der Rooy designed a series of courtyard houses in the 1920s, and Rencourt has designed a courtyard house in the early 2000s. While all these projects are very, very different, um, they may have different materials or different technologies, different proportions or colors. They all have something in common. That is, they all have a central open space. Therefore, they all belong to the same uh, courtyard uh, type. So uh, if that sort of introduction or, or definition of type was clear enough, I can comment very briefly on the structure of my book, which is divided into three parts. So the first part is a historical survey that is on the use of the term type in architecture. So I trace that to the late 18th century, when a French thinker, an architect named Quatremère de Quincy, defined the word type or the term type for the first time. Following, I examine how during the 19th century the concept of type became a central design strategy, fundamentally at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. So this is the first part that is really the 18th and 19th century. The second part, which is also more or less chronological, I focus on the consideration of type during the 20th century, when we find a truly, I think, a fascinating situation while in the 1910s and 1920s most modern architects strongly rejected or ignored the use of type in the design process. Starting in the 1960s and particularly I have to say in Italy, architects and thinkers such as Aldo Rossi and Giulio Carlo Argan assumed the notion of type as a vital instrument for understanding both architecture and the city. And and they also proposed something very interesting that it relates to my book, that they consider type as a tool for developing the architectural project. So back into the 20th century, we we noticed that in 40 years, the concept of type went from being completely neglected and rejected to become the most radical and controversial subject that defined the discussions and debates on architecture and the city after uh, the 1960s. And finally is the third section of my book where I examine uh, different ways in which type can be used in the design process. Uh, In these cases, the architect starts by adopting a type and subjecting it to various, something that I call alteration mechanisms. Uh, And for example, some alteration mechanisms are distortion. So you adopt a type and you proceed to distort it or variation of scale, or juxtaposition. And I exemplify these mechanisms with projects. I, I, I want to use very well-known architects uh, or examples, or case studies uh, such as by Michelangelo and Gaudí for distortion, Boulet and Rem Kool as examples of magnification, or Jen Hedjuk he- he- and Casa Malaparte on juxtaposition, and, and so on. And the last chapter, I examined the affinities, and that's where the title of my book, between the tactics of the ready-made, that is uh, as conceived by Marcel Duchamp, and typological displacement, that is the uh, when a type changes its meaning not by changing the form but simply changing the location or the placement of of that uh, of that form. So. Uh, Therefore, once I start relating art and architecture, I establish, I open a, like, what I think is a new territory that is the reconsideration of the relationship between contemporary art and architecture. So I think this pretty much covers the mo- main points I discuss in, the, in this book. I don't know if, if you have any questions, Tricia
0: yeah well, let's see. Um, why do you start the book with Legier? and and I'll say for the audience, they know that I'm uh, landscape architecture, and this is architecture, even though we're all you, you know interrelated. but uh, can you tell me more about him uh, and why was he um, included in this book?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. It's really where the story begins. Uh, let's remember that during the 18th century we find the first definition of type within the architectural discourse. Uh, it is a moment when uh, society had a lot of interest in the idea of origins. So suddenly there, we find that, that this time period there are books on the origins of language, on the origins of humankind, on the origins of culture, and so on. So it, it is not surprising that within this context, a Frenchman named Logère, would write a book about the origins of architecture. And I have to say, Loger was an absolutely fascinating figure. Although he was a priest, he was totally obsessed with architecture, who wrote an essay where he states that the first dwelling by the first humans was a hut. So the interesting thing is that for Loger, that hut was not something from the past, but I would call it a sort of seed or a primal form that anticipates all architecture that will be produced later on and until nowadays. So in other words, Loger was anticipating what I call it the sort of original DNA of architecture, an idea that is obviously derived from genetics, that the essential characteristics of humankind are being passed from generation through generation, through traces of DNA. So the same idea, a little bit, this obviously simplification, but that, that was the idea that Loger was arguing, that there was a continuity in the uh, architecture being developed from, the, from its origins till nowadays. Now, this idea of the original cut advanced by Loger was further developed some 50 years later, uh, that is more or less towards the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century by another Frenchman, in this case, the scholar and architect Quatremer de Quincy. And Quatremer, and he, he, and he that's why he's in the title of the book because Quatremer adopted the idea, Loger's idea of the original type, but, and this is interesting. For the first time in history, he used the word type within the context of architecture. That is, he defined Loger's hut as a type. So following Quatremer as himself, if these are buildings around the world are so bi- are so different from each other, could they all come from the same route? So, so, that, so he realized that what he called a primal dwelling may vary depending on the landscape or the climate or the natural settings. So, for instance, he arrived at the conclusion that the architecture of ancient Egypt, which is about weight and sort of heaviness, must have derived from the cave, which is very obviously very different from a hut, and following observing the dwellings of the nomad people in the Middle East, the Quatremer arrived at the conclusion that the original dwelling must have been the tent. So his conclusion was that the origins of architecture can be traced not to one, but to three original or what he called the seminal types. The hut, which is the antecedent of Greek and basically most of European architecture. The cave, which is the antecedent of Egyptian architecture and the tent which anticipates the light architecture of uh, the Far East of places like China and Japan. So Quatremer's theory was that all buildings produced by humankind one way or another derived from uh, these uh, three different uh, types. Uh, so the interesting thing about Loger and Quatremer uh, theory is, and with the idea of type in general, is that on the one hand it relates to past forms and it's really rooted in the past, but on the other hand it's something that is constantly changing, constantly evolving. So let me give you an example, and just to give you an example, a colonnade, which is again is a very very common uh, form used and used over and over. And sometimes I use the Italian, which is also used in English, the word loggia, and both colonnade and loggia is a semi-covered space where, that has columns on one side. So we know that there were colonnades in ancient Greece, that they became popular during the Renaissance, and during the 20th century, Catalan uh, architect Gaudí created some tremendously original colonnades in Barcelona. And just to go to nowadays, contemporary architects, and for instance, Santiago Calatrava, Design some very quite remarkable colonnades. So, all these examples that are very, very different in terms of style, colors, and material, they all belong to the type uh, colonnade. And all these, obviously, uh, uh, Quatremer was discussing basic concepts and ideas, but it was anticipated by Quatremer that, is when, that the uh, forms that derive from the past. Are continuously being evolving, and they will be continually uh, uh, evolve uh, forever. So I, I think that 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 is sort of the the main reasons I start the, my book uh, focusing on quadrumer. Uh,
0: well, you know, I was thinking oh, when you were talking about you know the hut and everything like that. You know, recently in the news, um, they were talking about uh, kids and how they like to build pillow forts. And, uh, I remember as a kid, you know, we're going out in the woods and, and we like to, um, build forts, et cetera, and everything. I I don't know. I don't remember being taught how to do it or et cetera, but do you think that's some kind of, um, uh, primal instinct that we have as people to, uh, like build shelter?
1: Yes. I I think, uh, when the... I think shelter is so so associated with humankind. The first thing that uh, that defines us as human is that we alter nature for creating our own habitat. And the way we alter uh, uh, nature not only affects the uh, the the context where we live, but it affects ourselves. So we are not indifferent to the places where. Uh, we're, sorry, we are not indifferent to the places where we live. Actually, the places where we live will affect us. So it makes sense that the moment we are creating our uh, dwelling or the places that we will inhabit, we will pay a special uh, attention to it. And. Uh, those once we created one precedent, we know that one way or another, a defining issue about humankind is the notion of imitation. We learn to speak by imitating the adults, and we learn to play by imitating other, other kids or, or learning their game. So it makes sense that we develop building architecture and design in general by imitating what they previously have done. And that doesn't mean that we are always repeating the same thing. We learn a language and then we create our own (laughs) sentences and then we create our own stories and our own novels. But basically, we're continuing a tradition of a language and Basically, they, this idea of type is, is is that that there is a a past that we inherit, and we are continuously being it is continually being developed and will be continually being de- developed. And I think the the more clear we are about that, the most um, uh, how how can I say. Uh, the, the better understanding we have about the decisions we make as uh, designers.
0: Okay, so now we talked about type um, and the environment, temples, villas, etc. And uh, how do you use this as a design tool? And can you elaborate on how that's used in the classroom and professionally?
1: Well, uh, and th- that is more or less my main arg- argument or the main argument of my book. And perhaps that is the reason that a definition of type is slippery. But because on one hand, we all know a building type is usually used for classifying or organizing or, let's say, categorizing the built environment. And as I said before, when we talk about whatever, bungalows or domes or basilicas or skyscrapers, we're talking about uh, established types. But the interesting thing is that type can also be considered in different ways, that is the moment an architect decides to start the project by selecting a certain typology. So uh, in so many occasions that architect or designer, knowing or not, start their design by selecting a type. So uh, once architects say, I'm going to say and I, again, I'm using the example of the cordial, which is easy for anybody to, to follow. Uh, once uh, uh, somebody says, I'm going to design this house or any, or any building uh, with a central courtyard, that is a very, very fundamental question. So when you you ask about a, a sort of teaching design, and I think one of the most difficult questions a student, architectural student in an architects are any designing uh, is involved is how to start a project. You have the famous white page and you said, well, what should I do now? So uh, you can start <laughs> throwing lines or getting get a clay model and starting uh, doing uh, looking for forms and looking sculptural forms. Or you could look as well, what would be the appropriate precedent or type that could be used as a point of departure that makes sense in this culture, in this climate, in this uh, sort of a, a precise uh, history, etc. And that is an issue that obviously is very, very, uh, it, it can be a very, very interesting tool for uh, a design a student, for a, a studio or a, a, basically an architectural student to start a, a project. So I, I think it's, it's a, it's a clearly it's an interesting tool. It's clearly, and I have to say, you, you could say in a counter-argument. Would that tool be against, like would be uh, sort of in a certain way uh, refraining the creativity? So the big question is how can you d- use a type and use something that is pre- pre-existing that doesn't uh, force or doesn't push the designer to uh, use repetitive uh, solutions, but rather using that as a point of departure and eventually develop into original or creative uh, options.
0: Now, let me ask you: um, on a cover book, it was a very interesting picture. Um, you know, why did you choose that, and what um, were the affinities that you found that were um, unexpected?
1: Yes, the, the cover that you're referring is basically a collage or a montage. Uh, In the background, it has what I was referring to before, a a loggia or a colonnade designed by uh, uh, the architect Aldo Rossi. This is in Italy. This is a housing project. Uh, It's a project that is about 1970s and the 1970s and 80s was very well known, was a point of departure away from modernism by this group of Italians that I was referring to. And interesting enough, in the foreground, it has a, a, a montage, the montage, the, the photograph of bicycle wheel that is a ready-made by Marcel Duchamp of the year 1913, as is usually considered sort of the first ready-made. Uh, and his a stool, And on top of the stool, it's sort of bolted and places in a reverse position the bicycle wheel, and uh, and it's interesting because it's it's a it's a very interesting combination. This bicycle wheel that is the stool and the bicycle, or basically sort of the pedal style and and the circular uh, wheel. and and in a way, it's like the, the notion of function, what is the purpose of that, has disappeared because it's a bicycle wheel that you cannot use it as such. It's a stool that you cannot sit on. And, uh, and that was a breaking moment in the history of uh, art of the 20th century. Um, so, and, and that introduced me to uh, the artist Marcel Duchamp, who... Uh, just to give you a little bit, to introduce you, let me tell you an anecdote about him uh, that is happening four years after this 1913 uh, 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 ready-made. That is when he, uh, later he moved to New York City and there was a very well-known anecdote that there was an exhibit at the Armory in New York and asking that any artist that would participate uh, as long as they pay a fee. So Duchamp went to a plumbing store, bought a urinal, took it to his home, rotated, signed it, and eventually submitted it to the exhibition. And the title of the piece was called uh, Fountain. And with this operation, Duchamp created the first ready-made, which became one of the most influential moments of 20th century art. So the idea of the ready-made, be it the bicycle wing of the fountain, is that the work of art doesn't need to be something new or a new form, but it can be something existing. In this case, a blind big picture or a bicycle wheel and a stool. But the moment they are located or displaced into a new context, in this case would be an art gallery or an art museum, it acquires a complete new meaning. So the originality of Duchamp was that he was not creating new forms or new objects, but rather creating new ideas for those objects and forms. And this is what I try to convey for architecture, that sometimes we don't need to necessarily to create new buildings, but rather identifying existing buildings or existing forms and assigning or thinking of them under new ideas. And for instance, we see an old factory, or we see a, an old a, a, a warehouse, etc. Things that we may think, "Oh, this should be it is not useful anymore; it should be demolished," etc. And suddenly, we may find that we can give a new function, a new idea to those. Um, Uh, constructions that otherwise, initially, they seem that uh, they have no interest in. Uh, So, uh, and what Duchamp made me think what happened when the architectural project doesn't consist in creating new architectural forms, but rather selecting an existing form and relocating or displacing it into a new uh, context. And I have to say, and this made me think a lot, and made me went back to look into history. And among other, one of the main things I teach uh, together with design is history. And this idea of identifying uh, uh, forms that belong to different contexts and combining it has been used uh, before. And one, some interesting uh, in uh, the sixteenth century. This was done by Palladio when he made his villas by combining typologies that, at least at that point, they were not residential. So on the one hand, Palladio used typologies that uh, that were religious, uh, that belonged to, 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 to the religious vocabulary, such as porticos, pediments, and domes, and combined them with typologies associated to the countryside or the farm kind of construction, such as old-fashioned barns or shacks. And perhaps more recently was Le Corbusier, who designed houses that appear uh, to most eyes very modern and new, but at the same time, they were basically combinations of fragments of ships and factories. In other words, Le Corbusier was creating a new architectural vocabulary with forms that are borrowed from outside um, architecture. So I, th- I think this notion, and this is because come back to your question of the cover of the book, this notion of um, first of relating art and architecture. I think art and architecture were so much together from the 15th century till the Bauhaus to the 20th century. And in the, I have to say, the second half of the 20th century, they started going in different paths. And I'm very, very interesting in trying to reconnect and to find affinities between them. So that's that's one ar- line of argument. And the other one is what is specifically Duchamp. What did Duchamp? What oh, Duchamp? Sorry, what doors Duchamp open? That is the notion that we can reutilize existing forms and. Uh, use them in completely uh, creative or unprecedented uh, ways.
0: Well, that's interesting. You know, that's true about art and architecture. And it it did kind of, um, I was doing an art history uh, class and uh, the decorative program and how it was interrelated with the ancient buildings and how, you know, um, I guess in the United States, et cetera, that that art and architecture kind of did take like a, uh, uh, a split and um, what what, uh, what did you discover maybe in your book about that? Because you know, I know that a lot of our buildings in the United States are pretty plain um, and et cetera and we kind of lost uh, the artistic stuff but sometimes it likes to return. Now, you know, some, some architects are trying to do more uh, form and organic shapes uh, for buildings. Is that going to be the next type? Ye-
1: yes and no because obviously our Architecture is, it has so many condiments of art, but it's not an art because an architecture, it has, at the bottom line, it has to fulfill a purpose. But I think it's very, very important that architects are sensitive and open and uh, receptive to developments in contemporary art. And if you look at much of contemporary art, that whether it's about installation art of land art and um, and so many artistic forms that are related to space, uh, I, I think architects can really, really look at those and learn from, from those uh, examples. Uh, obviously, there are moments and moments. If an architect has to design a museum in a place where the budget is very, very generous, I think is one condition very, very different that if, if that if that same architect has to design a community center uh, in, a, in a, let's say, a not affluent area. So uh, we have to be, and it's, it's hard to put everything under the same umbrella of architecture. So I think, yes, architects have to be much, much more sensitive and open. In trying to follow the developments in contemporary art, and I, I, I hope <laughs> it, w- it goes both ways. I, th- I hope they establish a dialogue, but l- realizing that always there are different disciplines. At some moments, they can touch, and I think it's great, or intersect, but uh, di- uh, are very di- uh, different disciplines. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's uh, clear enough or, 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 or responds to your answer.
0: Sure, that was kind of an off the cuff kind of question. <laughs> not, not exactly always related to the book, but you know, so I keep it keep it casual here. No,
1: no, um, and, I, and I have to say, and that that is exactly the kind of questions I would like I like to raise in the book because it's, it's like uh, one of the things I argue for, which is something like an oxymoron. That is the the opposition between originality and repetition, and. Um, Uh, And and this has been a tension that has been on and on, like both in art and architecture, when an artist is okay to repeat or imitate something and when it is not. And since modernism, the idea of repeating was something that became like a bad word. And suddenly someone like Duchamp really challenged that. I said, well, sometimes you can repeat a form But actually, the way you present that form, it will offer a completely new meaning and sometimes could be as controversial, if not more than if you create a new form. So my point is, like, why don't we cannot open our (laughs) minds and sensibility to those options that contemporary art is offering uh, to architects?
0: Yeah, I was kind of thinking of, you know, recently they've had, like, a lot of... um, uh, I, like I said, I'm say landscape architecture, but they had David uh, or, or, oh gosh, what's his name? Oh, this is bad. Uh, Gary, um, the famous architect, and Fra- he was Frank talking Gary, about yeah. Frank Gary. Oh gosh, yeah. that's so bad, Frank Gary. That's right. Yeah. Um, and 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 how you know he's trying to like you know introduce clients to very organic forms, but still it's still a hut at the end of the day. It's just a <laughs> it's just a pillow fort in the air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it is—it is a repeat, but uh, I guess if anything's got two sides and a roof, it's kind of a hut.
1: No, and and it's interesting because Frank Gehry, in many ways, he's, has been very, very original. But up to what point can you continue being original? And if you look much of his buildings now, they are repetitions of his own architecture, <laughs> because you see a building and so, and you want to call it his style or his uh, a sort of design approach or whatever, but you see a Frank Berry building and you immediately identify it as a Frank Berry building. So one hand you say, well, it's original because it's different from what other architects have been doing in many ways, not in everything, but in many ways. But at the same time, is creating its own family of buildings that are <laughs> you can classify them and put them all in the same kind of... Uh, war, <laughs> uh, a shelf that is all. Oh, these are all the uh, Frank Berry buildings that they all look very much alike. So again, they there is a component of originality, but also clearly there's a component of repetition.
0: So he's now a type.
1: <laughs> he's creating his own. Yeah, in a way, yes, it's, it's a different way of understanding type. But yeah, there are many common features that are being repeated over and over. And yes, I think you can perfectly. Uh, categorize or organize all his buildings and say, well, they all have all these commonalities, so they all belong to a, a, a kind of a, a new type. And, when, and that's a problem. If some students try to imitate him, and on one hand they feel that they might be doing something original... Because it's different to many others, but eventually is similar to what he's doing. So, so trying to be original, you end up also repeating. So, yeah, I think it's more than anything to be attentive and alert of, of, of these uh, questions. And I think they're like everything, there's room for everyone. But I, I, as long as we have clarity in the, in the responses or the solutions we are proposing.
0: Well, let me ask you too, um, you're talking about a little bit in the in, uh, in the book about um, urban design tactics uh, too. Um, uh, is there urban types and how does that relate to architecture?
1: Yes, and that that was uh, a key thing of the sort of rediscovery of type in the 1960s when I mentioned in the Italian school, I mentioned Aldo Rossi and Argan, and that was one of the main criticisms they were doing to the modern architects, that while the quality of the architecture was, in many cases, very, very good, and we can think of all the famous, uh, usually, names that, uh, the, what I call the usual suspects, like uh, Le Corbusier or Mies van der Rohe, or Gropius, etc., they were, they did great piece of architecture, but their conception of the city was very poor and if we think of a modern city it's very hard to think of a very good example. So that was the first thing that wa- the that reaction against modernism in the 1960s and that main, uh, the main subject was the city. So what was the, this nine, uh, Aldo Rossi proposed is let's rethink architecture based on the city. And how is the city composed by a lot of little <laughs> interventions that are repeated? And what are those interventions are types? So if you look at any Italian city, and then for that say for any city in the world, it has a lot of housing that are very very similar, and occasionally a building that is different. Uh, in the sort of from until 18th century, that different building was usually a church. Or, um, or some kind of important civic civic uh, building like an orchestra hall or something like that. Now later, that different building would be a museum or a city hall, etc. But uh, so uh, what Aldo uh, Ross and others propose is a new reading of the city based on type and identify which types are prone to be repeated that are mostly. Or houses, or small shop, etc. That is okay if they are very, very similar one to another. And just to think, I'm I'm in Philadelphia, and 60 uh, percent of all construction of what you call building inventory is a row house. And if you look at the row house, you say, well, many are homes, but many are whatever, uh, ice cream parlors or hairdressers or restaurants or offices or whatever. So the idea of it's impossible to understand a city like Philadelphia if you don't accept or, or first uh, identify that notion of, of that specific type that is uh, um, uh, the row house. So in, in other words, it's practically impossible to think, to have any discussion about the city without identifying those the different types or and you may think the most important type of the 20th century that is the skyscraper so it's, in most cities uh, it is impossible to think about them without understanding that suddenly there is a vertical type that has completely different <laughs> sort of considerations and uh, qualities than other typologies so i, I think any discussion about uh, the city has to consider or has to uh, include a consideration of the notion of type or, or, and typology.
0: Well, uh, Pablo, uh, it's been a, a real pleasure having you here on today, and this has been most interesting. I've, I've nearly never thought about type. We don't, I have another question. So before I do this, uh, where do you think type is going from here? What's going to be uh, the next type? Well, a type
1: is very hard to invent it usually is a process that an architect finds a new solution and is later imitated and that solution sometimes it comes from the sheer let's say creativity of the architect but it's usually a response to uh, the needs of society so now we're unfortunately we're living in the middle of a pandemia and i could see that there will be new types of urban spaces and buildings that are a reaction to that. And uh, and the notion of working and living in the house, we may find new kinds of hybrid <laughs> typologies that integrates working and living in the same place or thinking about whatever, restaurants, everything that we that now all those places that now are closed in most of the country and most of the world will need to be redefined so th- this is a fascinating uh, moment in this case uh, in this case uh, and i think unfortunately i have to say <laughs> because it's, it's it's very bad and many people are suffering etc but uh, i think it's a um, uh, i in, from if we restrain the conversation to types i I'm completely, I'm very convinced that we will be seeing new typologies uh, arising and they will be simply, they will be responses to uh, uh, things that are being uh, asked by sort of society and economy and culture in general.
0: Oh, yes, that's true. I wonder how, uh, yeah, things are going to change or if they do, if they're permanent and it's kind of exciting to think, you know, what kind of types going to come up next?
1: Yeah. 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 I, I I cannot, I cannot tell you because I'm not very good forecasting, but I, I cannot tell you which types will be coming. We can guess, but I'm sure there will be new typologies emerging.
0: That sounds so cool. Um, Well, uh, Pablo, again, uh, you know, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time and, and coming on this show. The book is it's really awesome. And for, um, for our listening audience, you're just going to have to uh, buy the book so you can see the pictures and the cover. It's really, really nice. Um, so Pablo, uh, can you tell the audience, uh, what are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, I'm, to be, I'm glad that you asked because I'm very, very excited with the, uh, my new project. In this time, uh, these occasions, I'm not doing this by myself, but together with a colleague, His name is Gregory Marinick, uh, who teaches at the University of Cincinnati. And we're working on a multi-year project on informal settlements in Latin America. Uh, We are proposing sort of developing a a book that will examine how contemporary architects are developing new and original uh, urban design tactics towards enhancing the quality of life of people living in what we can may call shantytowns or slums. So to this end, we are pairing one architect and one city. So we are concentrating on the works of Alejandro Echeverri, who has been working with much success in the slums of uh, Medellin, Jorge Jauregui, who has been uh, working on interventions in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, uh, Flavio Hanches has been is working in again in the slums in Buenos Aires. Tatiana Bilbao in Mexico, and uh, we go all the way to the border where Teddy Cruz and Fonaform Fona Forman are working on the border region of San Diego uh, Tijuana. And I have to say, as I was saying, I'm very very excited about these projects. Uh, and for one is that. Is for the first time, I practically in history that architects and designers in general are paying attention to the living condition of the most poor or deprived uh, segments of the population. And again, as I told you, I I like I, I always refer to history. But if we look at the principal architectural treatises and writings from Vitruvius to the Renaissance and to nowadays. We realize that architecture, and I have to say as a discipline, hasn't paid much attention to those living under the conditions of extreme poverty. And I find this tremendously remarkable, considering that nowadays one out of seven people around the world are living in slums. And I'm thinking, what if medicine would only cover people... (laughs) Uh, diseases for the middle and upper class and not paying attention to the poor would be inconceivable. So I think it's finally that the architects, urban planners and landscape designers and designers in general are finally realizing that uh, dealing with these questions, although they are difficult, although they are complex, but I think it's absolutely necessary. And I think we we have a lot to offer to uh, enhance the living conditions of these people. So I could go on and on, but I thought I, th- I thought I thought I gave you a good uh, a good uh, introduction to the subject.
0: Oh yes, that sounds yeah it most definitely. You know that everybody deserves um, attention and um, decent, clean uh, housing. That uh, just decent, clean housing can prevent a lot of diseases and problems too, just in and of itself.
1: So uh, as soon as we complete the book, I promise the first interview with we, will be with you.
0: Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to that. Thank you. Um, And uh, for our audience, I'm going to tell them the name of the book again. It is Unexpected Affinities The History of Type, an Architectural Project from Legir to Duchamp by Pablo Meninato, published by Routledge in 2018. And again, I'm Tricia from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening.